Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and now the recording is on and we're going to study the book of Matthew chapter 13. And we left off right around verse 44. What has occurred here in the book of Matthew? Oh, do you have a question? Oh, very good. Thank you. Ken wanted me to mention to you uh, Zoom people that we are meeting tonight on the 5th of, of December, and we'll have two more on the 12th and the 19th. December 19th will be the last meeting for the Bible study, and then we'll take a few weeks off for the holidays. Thank you, Ken. You get an A for the day for remembering that, because I didn't. Um, what's happened is Matthew has presented his case in the first um, nine or so, ten chapters, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the rightful King of Israel. There's so much proof in those chapters, the miracles, the miracle birth, the testimony of um, God from heaven at his baptism, the testimony of John the Baptist as well, who will come up later tonight. Now, uh, Israel has made its decision in chapters 11 and 12, and for the most part, the answer is no thanks. They don't really believe in Jesus, most of them. He's still got a sizable following, but the religious leaders have decided that he is a fake, a phony, and they don't believe in him. As a result, the judgment on Israel is that starting in this chapter, he starts teaching a different way. In almost a code, a, a thing called parables, that those who have the spirit will hear and understand and grow and learn, and other people, it'll go right over their heads and they won't really get anything out of it, the ones that don't believe. So parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They generally don't have a name. It's a man had two sons or a man was searching for something, you know, kind of thing. But there's always a spiritual meaning to them. We've got two hard ones to look at. They look simple. Most commentators think they mean one thing. I'm going to show you why I think they mean something else tonight. I might be wrong. As usual, when there's this kind of controversy, I'm going to give you both sides and let you decide. Okay, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Okay, good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or whatever. I can only see five or six of you. Amen from Zoom land. I love that sign. Okay. Uh, and somebody raised their hand up. I like it. So we won't review the other parables. Um, there's the parable of the weeds, you know, or tares and wheat we just covered last week. Let's just dive into chapter 13, verse 44, and look at this parable. I'm going to pair it with the one, the parable that follows it, and then we'll talk about both of them. Okay, here we go. Chapter 13, verse 44 The kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's one parable, okay? Uh, the parable of the hidden treasure, it's called. Here's the other one, and then we'll discuss both. The second one is the parable of the pearl or the pearl of great price. Here it comes, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found one, verse 46, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it, bought that pearl. Okay, so um, I want to do one little unusual left turn here for the first parable because look at it again verse 44 the kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field got the picture when a man found it pause right there what's going on the man who found it doesn't own the field how do you know that because he's going to give away sell everything he has to buy that field just to get that treasure got the picture some people have asked the question isn't this unethical that he finds a treasure in Terry and Donna's field and doesn't knock on their door and go, I found a treasure in your field. I just want you to know that seems like the high ground, by the way, who hides a treasure in somebody else's field? Because obviously the owner sells the land with the treasure in it. The owners don't know the treasures there. So is this unethical? That's the first question I want to cover quickly. The answer is no. Believe it or not, the hiding of treasure went on really frequently in that era. Why is that? Because nobody has invented safes with combinations. Um, there's no banks with safe deposit boxes and all of that, right? So if you have a treasure you might dig a hole and hide it on your own property. Meaning what? Meaning Terry and Donna who own the property now, it's not really their treasure. Yes, it's on their property. The previous owner buried it there. Wait a minute. Well, then why didn't he get it, you know, at some point, take it? The answer is, this is a land that was overrun with war and invasions. And so often, um, somebody, I would bury a treasure in my property and there'd be a war and I'd get killed and nobody knows it's there. The new owners clearly don't know it's there. This happened so frequently that Jewish rabbinic law spoke to this situation and said, if a man finds scattered money or fruit or treasure, it belongs to the finder uh, for this very reason. Okay, so... Uh, it's not unethical what the man does. As a matter of fact, it's extremely ethical because some people would have done what? Found the treasure and stole it, gather it up and move on. And the owners don't even know it's missing because they don't know it was there. This guy does the right thing. He approaches the owners. I want to buy your field. He buys it and then it becomes, we're all going to dig in your yard next week in Mariposa in, over there. Come on down. Jersey Dale is actually where they live. Okay, so it's not unethical. That's the first thing. Um, the owner didn't know it was there. He never went to the effort to search his own property. Okay, so two main theories about this uh, parable. The majority opinion, I'll admit, my opinion is not the majority but it's, it's a minority, but it's, there are quite a few scholars that agree with me, okay? Or I should say I agree with them. I'm no scholar. Okay, I want to read it one more time. Kingdom of heaven, it's like a, uh, sorry, wrong one, like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, 
He hit it again. Then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. What do the two parables have in common? I want you to notice it's one person, a man in each case, right? Secondly, what else is there in common? Something really valuable to that person. So valuable, they're willing to sell everything. Imagine that, total liquidation. Everything they have just to get this treasure, or in the other case, the pearl. In one parable, the guy stumbles on it and finds it, the first one. In the second parable, the guy is looking for it, a merchant looking for fine pearls. You see that? Okay. The common interpretation, the majority opinion, is theory number one, which is this. Um, the incomparable value of becoming a Christian, of knowing Jesus Christ, of the gospel, take your pick, okay, of salvation. It is so valuable that the man is willing to give up everything to get Jesus, meaning the gospel, Jesus, salvation, and this isn't untrue, is more valuable than anything more valuable than all the gold and the diamonds and the pearls in the whole world, isn't it? It is. How do you know? Because all that stuff's going to burn. It's all temporary. The gospel is permanent. The gospel gives eternal life. If you get billions of dollars in wealth, guess what? You're going to die someday, and you're not going to take it with you. You have the gospel, you're going to die someday, and actually never die at all. You go into heaven with every spiritual treasure you ever had. May I say parenthetically, it's possible that Jesus intended this to be purposely a little cloudy because both of these theories might be true. Because as I said, it's not untrue that the gospel is that valuable. Okay, so theory number one, the incomparable value of the kingdom. One person is appropriating it. He has to personally get it. What does that mean? It means if Don Collins is a Christian and his son is a Christian automatically. No, his son has to personally come to Jesus on his own, right? The Jews thought, well, I'm a Jew and my father was a Jew. My grandfather, I'm in. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, let's see. The kingdom is so valuable, kingdom of God, that losing everything on in the earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. I want you to notice in the text, look at verse 44. Uh, he finds the treasure, puts it back, hides it again. I want you to notice the word joy. Do you see the word joy there? Then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Okay. So this theory, theory number one, the majority theory, is that uh, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, listen to this. Whatever, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Sounds like it agrees with the parable. Jesus is so valuable we ought to be willing to give up everything. But the parable does say more than that. He's not willing to give up everything only. He gives up everything. He sells everything just to get the treasure? No. What does he buy? 
the field. Okay, now we got a problem. What's the field? Look at verse 38 of this chapter. In a, in a previous parable, same chapter, the field is the what? The world. Do you as a Christian have to buy salvation? No, can't be bought. What would you buy it with? Number two, even if you say, well, I'm willing to give up everything, it's the most valuable thing to me, we're talking about the treasure, which is Christ in this analogy. Do you follow me? But it's the world. To get the treasure, he's willing to buy the field. You can't buy the world. You don't have enough money. Neither do I, even if we pool our money. So, um, but there are scriptures that make it sound like, and it's true, it's the most valuable thing. Uh, but he sells everything he has so that he can buy <clears throat> the field. Admittedly, he buys the field, which is nothing special, to get the treasure. Okay. The treasure is hidden. It was hidden. He hides it again. Okay. Um, Christians are not blind to the treasure, but the unsaved world, in this analogy, no offense, Terry and Donna, they're the, the owners of the field are oblivious to the treasure. They're unsaved. They are dead in their sins. They're blind. You with me? They can't see it. You can tell a person all you want that's unsaved. Unless God is drawing them to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, they're just going to go, yeah, Jesus, Bible. If it works for you, uh, Janet, go ahead. But it's not my thing, right? They don't see the incomparable value of it. Um, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to, the, to them in whom the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Okay, now I will give you one more verse to be fair. Isaiah 55, 1. I want you to turn there. It's an unusual verse. Isaiah, roughly the middle of the Bible. Find your Bible, go to the middle. If you come to Psalms, take a left and go to Isaiah chapter 50. Five, I'm going to show you a strange verse that kind of might tie into this whole buy your way in. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So we still haven't answered the question, well, then how am I buying the gospel? Is it just that I have to be willing to lose everything in order to gain the gospel? Might be. What we've got so far in theory number one, which I agree with and you ought to too, is that the gospel, Jesus Christ in your life as Lord and Savior is more valuable than anything. Right? Can I get a amen? amen. Okay. Just seeing if you're awake. All right. Theory number two, first of all, Jesus is not a hidden treasure. Jesus is the most well-known, the best-known person of history. Time magazine in the 70s did an article and said that the most important person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. Time magazine, which is no Christian magazine, as you know. You can't buy salvation. Okay, smarty pants, who is the man? It's 
It's Jesus. What? Wait a minute. Jesus is the man? Yes. And what's he buying? The world. Well, where did he do that? On the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed. But he's, he is, in a sense, buying the world. Well, wait. Who's the God of this world? Satan, small g. For one of the Corinthian books says that. Well, then what about that? Hey, Jesus is not, has not taken full possession of the world yet. Will he? Yes, second coming. Remember the scroll in Revelation chapter 6? There's no one worthy to open the scroll and take all those seals off of the scroll. And then Jesus shows up. He's the one who is worthy. Most scholars think that scroll is the title deed of planet Earth. Maybe the whole universe. Only he's able to do it because he paid. What did Jesus give? Did he pay money? Didn't really have a lot of money. He gave everything he had, didn't he? You give your life, what more can you give, right? Some gave all. There's a country song. He gave all on the cross. Okay. That's how much Jesus values you, me. If that doesn't make you cry, you're not listening. He values his, the people of his kingdom, the believers enough, to die in their place, die for them. In the parable, the man finds the treasure. In Christianity, no man, Romans 3, listen, no man seeks after God. No one. It's quoting the Old Testament. No one seeks God. Well, then how do people become Christians? God seeks men and draws them. That's how you came, whether you think you found it because you're so smart and so spiritual, whatever. The truth is, John 6, 44, Jesus talking, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who f what's the treasure? Christians, look at verse 44 again. The kingdom of God. <clears throat> A man finds it, hides it again temporarily, and then in his joy... Key word, we'll come back to that. He went and sold all he had and bought that field. Died on the cross. That's why he came to the earth. Now, I want you to turn to, oh, it's somewhere here in the notes. First uh, Corinthians 7, and then we'll go to Hebrews. Go to First Corinthians. Look at that, I turned right to it. First Corinthians chapter 7. You, when you hear this verse, you go, oh, yeah, I've heard this one before. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. You were what? He's talking to Christians. You were what? Bought with a price. Who was? You, believers. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's telling them, you didn't buy anything. He bought you. What was the price? His life, his blood. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought. Now, <laughs> Hebrews, um, gosh, why can't I find it in my notes? You would think I'd be more organized. Um, I think it's chapter 12. Yes, it is. Hebrews 12, yay. 
Turn to Hebrews toward the back. Philemon, then Hebrews, then James. So if you're at James, take a left and go back. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Some translations have other ways of saying that. But listen. Who, talking about Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross where he paid, where he bought you. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, and it goes on from there. Okay. Second um, Peter 2, verse 1. Let's go there. So from Hebrews, just take a right and go a couple books to the right. First Peter, past James, first Peter, second Peter. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you're not going to get an A for the day, like Ken did for asking that question. Okay. It sounds like it's not going to relate to anything, but look at first, second Peter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, like Joel Osteen. Oh, no, that doesn't say that. I'm sorry. Okay, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. A heresy is a doctrine that is not biblical. Destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, what? Bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. They're denying the, the Lord who bought them. Okay, go back to the parable. Um Oh, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. The Savior finds the lost sinner. Remember the parable when there's 99 sheep and one, the hundredth one, wanders away? He leaves the 99 to go find that one. Who does the finding? Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man, the God-man, Jesus, the Son of Man, found it he hid it again then in his joy he was willing to sell and he did sell all he had and bought that field gave it all up that's how valuable you are i am to him it's astounding if god had a fridge your picture would be on it but he doesn't need a fridge food doesn't spoil in heaven okay so <clears throat> That's one parable we didn't cover 45 and 46, which is very similar, which might be the same meaning. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Pearls in that generation were more valuable than gold. They were considered an amazing thing. Okay, uh, unbelievable, unspeakable value. He's looking for, this time, fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Not the field, he just bought the treasure. It could be that both of these are true because the, the kingdom of God, Christianity, salvation is of incomparable value. If you think you own something, even if it's your family, more valuable than what you have in Jesus, you got it all wrong. Certainly, there's no material thing. Even people, as valuable as family is, don't get me wrong, it's very important. Jesus is 
more valuable. It might be, again, that's all it's saying. And Joe is trying to read into this too much. But if it's Jesus, a merchant looking for fine pearls, let's say I'm wrong. It's a man. It's a person. It's Don Collins who came to Jesus or Jeff Altimus who came to Jesus. He was looking for, doesn't fit Romans. No man seeks God, right? We look for wealth, prestige, power, sex, money, drugs, fame, alcohol. The unsaved man is not looking for the pearl of great price. But if I'm right, and it's not me, the kingdom of heaven is like Jesus looking for something of unbelievable value. And he finds it, sells everything he has, and he buys it. Is the treasure in 44 the same as the pearl in 45 and 46? <clears throat> in a sense, yes. But now let me just take you one step further and make you think I'm even crazier than you already think I am. Where was the treasure? In the, listen to the word, it was in the land. Hmm. The land. Old Testament, when they talk about the land, what are they talking about? Israel. Is it possible that the first part of this parable, which it sounds like they say almost the same thing, we get it, it's valuable, move on. Listen, what if it's the land being the world, it's talking about Israel, the land. There's that idea. Okay, what, do you, what about the next one, 45 and 46? Where do pearls end up? In the sea, right? Well, is the sea mentioned in the Old Testament and the New as being the Gentile world? Yes. Yes, specifically so in Revelation 17, 5. The waters you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's the unsaved Gentiles. So why do it twice? Because one is, he's calling out the believing Jews to believe in Jesus. Number two is the Gentiles. I could be wrong. Um, okay, so now that we beat that dead horse for a while, uh, but I love the idea, and it makes more sense to me, Jesus was searching for you, for me. Um, but it puts you in the position of being a great treasure. That's a pretty amazing thing. Because uh, I know you, and some of you aren't that great. Okay, <laughs> you're going, yeah, look in the mirror, pal. Okay, yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've got uh, more parables to cover. I'm just looking at my notes to see if I forgot anything, which I probably did. Um, in each case, um, the treasure that was sought was not sitting on the surface. It had to be sought. It had to be either dug up or pulled out of the ocean. One more thing. The nature of pearls. Okay. Diamonds exist. Gold exists in the earth. Pearls are formed, if you know anything about pearls, I don't mean cultured pearls, they didn't have those then. I mean the real deal. Natural pearls are the result of, listen to this, a wound, right? A, an oyster gets something 
in its shell, in its flesh that creates an irritation. And the oyster built by God as a picture of salvation, of, of uh, a lot of things. Anyway, the pearl emits something that goes around the irritation and makes the irritation, the wound, you mean like wounds, like Jesus cross? Yes, makes the wound into a blessing. Makes sense to me. Okay, let's move on because most of you are asleep now. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. The per a pearl is the product of suffering. Go ahead, Wendy, in one or two sentences because I have to repeat it for people who can't hear you. Pearls are not kosher. Oh, interesting, because oysters aren't kosher. So are you, are you agreeing that pearls maybe are the, referring to the Gentile believers? Very cool. You get an A. Minus. No, okay, an A. Back to the text. Verse 47. This is called the parable of the net. Not talking about the internet. He's talking about a fishing net. Here we go. I'm going to read the whole parable, then we'll talk about it. Verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how, verse 49, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and then throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the end of the parable. We'll get to 51 in a second. Go back to the beginning. Here's what you need to know. This sort of net was used by fishermen. It required a bunch of people two boats. You throw this giant net out, the other boat grabs two ends of it, you have two ends of it, and you both let it down into the lake or ocean, wherever you are, and then you drag it for a while, knowing you're going to catch some fish. You're also going to catch somebody's boot that was down there, somebody's, you know, Coke can. They didn't have Coca-Cola quite yet, but you get my point. There's going to be some waste in there. You might even have some dead fish in there, right? You might have um, crustaceans and crabs that they wouldn't eat, right? Jews would, they're not kosher. So the idea is that there is a sorting out at the end. What do you mean the end? I mean, this is similar to the weeds and the tares. I'm sorry, the tares and the wheat or the weeds and the wheat. You remember that? Where, oh no, an enemy has done this. There's weeds among the wheat. Shall we pluck up the weeds now? No, he says in that parable earlier in this chapter, let both grow until the harvest, the end of the age. He even explains that. We're thankful that he explains this one to some extent as well, doesn't he? Okay, so there's judgment at the end, but until then, there are two categories and two categories only. The good fish, the bad fish, the believers, the unbelievers. There's nobody that's on the fence that's, well, he's kind of a believer. It's like being kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either a believer or you're not, right? Okay, so um, let's see. Both 
will remain until the harvest, the end of the age. Okay, some people think the rapture is before that. I don't see it here. I see it at the end of the age, the last day when angels assist. Did you notice that? Christ in the harvest and the sorting out. But it's not fish, it's people. Okay, look at the parable again. They caught all kinds of fish when they let the net down in 47. When it was full, there comes a time when it's the end. When, as Wendy said to me last week, Chuck Missler used to say, Jesus is waiting for God to say, the Father, go get him. It's time. Go get the believers. In any case, verse 48, when it's full, the fishermen pull it up on the shore. They sit down, collect, they separate it. Good fish in baskets, they throw the bat away. I'm sorry, but you can't escape the fact that there is a judgment. It's not ollie ollie oxen free. There's a thing called universalism in some churches where in the end, everybody gets saved. Everybody. Do they? No, there's judgment for sin. Why does Jesus say narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life? Few there be that find it. That was earlier in this book. Do you remember? Sermon on the Mount. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that find it. Translation, most people on planet earth don't have salvation and they won't. Few do. You ought to be even more thankful. Not only are you valuable to him beyond measure, but you're one of the few, the chosen. Okay. Verse 40, <laughs> they threw the bat away. 49, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, separate the wicked from the righteous. Every time there's scriptures about the rapture or the second coming, guess what's in there? A bunch of keywords. I won't go into this whole thing now again, but if you remember, there's angels. There's a trumpet. Remember the last trumpet we learn in one of the scriptures. There is a cloud, right? There's a visible coming of Jesus. It's not invisible like the Jehovah's Witnesses say happened in 1914. He came invisibly. Every eye will see him, chapter one of Revelation. Okay, so at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Now, before you get a big head and say, ha ha, I'm one of the righteous, guess what? You used to be a weed, a tear. You used to be wicked. Okay, and it's by grace. It's not that you and I are any better, but the wicked are separated from the righteous. The righteous are only righteous because they believe in Jesus, where they're wearing his righteousness. Not They're not special people. You're not special. I'm not special. God chose us. I don't know why or how, but he did. I'm unbelievably thankful. You should be too. And what happens to the wicked? They'll separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace. There's a four-letter word for that. It starts with an H. Can anybody think of what it is? Sorry, it doesn't please me to talk about hell, but Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. It's a real thing. If you don't think it's hell, notice the phrase where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth ongoing, eternal punishment, separation from God and all things holy forever. Yikes. Um, 
So that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The, the righteous dwell with the wicked, unfortunately, along with them. They grow together in the field with the weeds and the tares. They are swimming in the ocean, in this analogy, in the Sea of Galilee with the wicked. Until when? The end. Christ returns. Okay. Um, I think we uh, got that one, didn't we? Throw them into the blazing furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is also um, uh, described as outer darkness, where their worm does not die. It's a place of absolute horror. Um, the question that somebody emailed me today involved, the person had said, how could a loving God send people to hell? A better question is, how could a loving God save any of us? Number one. Number two, did God send these people or did they write their own ticket when they said, nope, don't want Jesus, don't need the Bible, I'm good enough. My, right, Michelle, my good, day, good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. She's dealing with somebody on that issue. Good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. How good are your good deeds? Are they done for God's glory? Then they're not that good. I like to tell people that for every sin recorded that you ever think or do or say, you owe $100 million in heaven for every sin. But don't worry, for every good deed you do, you get a nickel. So go for it. Do your best. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds. All our righteousness is as filthy rags if it's our own and not his that we're wearing okay mm, um yeah we already talked about that a lot of these parables show the hiddenness of the gospel did you see that treasure hidden in a field a pearl that's hidden yeast that's hidden in dough or leaven good seed hidden in the soil remember that one a while back in this chapter fish under the sea in a net meaning what that the real impact of the Christian church on planet earth will not fully be known until the end. When they, unbelievers, will see, not only is Jesus Lord, <clears throat> pardon me, but around them, unbelievers, were living Christians that had a tremendous impact for good on the world. Okay. <laughs> I think we're done with that one. Now comes to me kind of a humorous verse, maybe not to you. Verse 51, Jesus says, all those parables we just read, right? Spent two weeks on them. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Do they? Totally? They don't know he's going to die on the cross yet. He's going to tell them and, the, and Peter's going to go, may it never be, Jesus. No way are you dying on that cross. Do they fully understand all this? We got it, Lord. Yes, we do. Do they? Maybe in a small way. I'm not putting them down. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet fully. Yes, they replied. This is the so what? Verse 52. Verse 52. Remember, they said, we get it. We got it all. We're getting an A on the test, Jesus. Verse 52. This sounds like it comes out of left field. It totally ties in. Listen, he said to them, therefore, what do you mean therefore? 
since you say you understand everything and you are the good fish, you are the believers, you are the wheat, you are the treasure, then listen up. Because with that knowledge comes responsibility. Watch. He said to them, therefore, every scribe, that's the word, NIV has teacher of the law. Every scribe, we'll talk about what that means. Every teacher of the law, they were teachers. They also were writers. They wrote the copies of the Old Testament. Therefore, every scribe, every teacher of the law, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. You say, okay, now you lost me. I, I, didn't, I didn't get that at all. Well, didn't you say, yes, we understand? Class, have you understood all the parables? Yes. We Who knows? Probably the teacher hasn't understood them all. What's he saying? Okay, a scribe was a teacher, a writer, a minister. Okay, they were Pharisees, but they, the specific thing they did was know the word, Old Testament, write it, make copies, and teach it. He's saying, since you say, yes, we get it, guess who you are now? He's saying to the 11 disciples, not Judas, what? Now you're the scribes. Go live it and teach it. But here's the mind-blowing thing. Look at the verse again. He's saying, you're the scribes now, so go teach it. Every teacher of the law who's become a disciple, it's not they're not staying scribes, Old Testament, just Judaism. He's saying every scribe that's become a teacher, become a disciple of the kingdom, become saved. It's like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom. Okay, there's a picture of a guy with a storeroom. You have a pantry that's like a storeroom. Well, this is bigger, but we have a pantry at our house. It's not huge, but we have a ton of stuff. Um, um, and you probably do too, right? You ever look at the, all the food you have in your house and ask if every store was empty and somebody had already shot all the rabbits and the deer in town, how long could we live with what we have in this house? Isn't that an interesting question? Okay, we digress. If you've become a believer, you're now a scribe and out of your storehouse, what you now know and you have, you're not supposed to hoard it. You're supposed to bring it out, teach it. But here comes the mind blower. Bring out of the storeroom new treasures as well as old. What's he talking about? He's saying, listen, this Christianity thing I'm here to start is not just new. We're throwing out all of Judaism, the whole Old Testament. You can burn all those books, uh, 37 books of the Old Testament, right? 29 in the new. Is that right? I think. Anyway, fooled you if I'm wrong. No, I think it's 37 Old Testament. We're throwing all the Genesis. We don't need that. He's saying it's new because the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new, but don't throw out the old. Still study Genesis, which we're doing in this church, right? Still study the book of Ruth or Jonah or Ezekiel because it all ties in. I love that that it's not, we're not just supposed to be, no, Matthew through Revelation, we don't need, yes, you do. That's the foundation. There's so many truths in the Old Testament, we can see how they're fulfilled in the new. Let's take our two-minute break. Go.
Go eat some delicious treats back there. You deserve it. And those of you on Zoom, hang with me two minutes. We're gonna, I'm gonna turn my screen off. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Great. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. By the way, if you're on Zoom, somebody texted me and said they see my name at the bottom of their screen. At the top, usually the top right of your screen, there's the word on Zoom, there's the word view. If you click that, you can choose speaker view, which makes me the big screen and is a scary thing. Or you can have gallery view where you see all the little pictures of the people. Just letting you know. Um, on the side of your uh, top right of your screen, usually. Okay, let's go back. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. The reason, those of you on Zoom, the reason it wasn't as loud, people have stuff in their mouth. They're eating. Amen. Okay. All right. We've come through the parables, and that last one was a little short parable for them. They're, we're, they're like owners of a house bringing out of their storeroom new treasures and old, Old Testament and new. Okay. Verse. 53, Jesus's homecoming, not good. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Verse 54, coming to his hometown, that would be what? Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was a really small, nothing, insignificant town. When one of the disciples hears about Jesus in John chapter 1 and hears he's from where? Nazareth? He says, do you remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, of all places to live, he chooses a humble little town to live. But he's going to go home. Coming to his hometown, verse 54, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Why? Well, he's got God's wisdom, right? He is God. But they remember him when he was a kid, a little snot-nosed kid, when he was three, when he was eight, when he was 11, teenager, 14. I'm not suggesting that he was a sinner because he wasn't. He never sinned, which would, to me, make him a little bit of an unusual child, right? Everybody in this room is a sinner. Some of us in our teen years, can I see a show of hands? Did you really kind of go overboard? Like, okay. Brian, I figured you would. Yeah. Okay. Most of the rest of you are all liars. Okay. Um, he comes to his hometown and they're amazed when he's teaching. Here he comes. I'm still in verse 54. Where did this man... They don't even call him Jesus. Where did this man get this wisdom? And these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, uh, or Joe says, some translations have, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they praised God for his wisdom. Is that what it says? No. And they were thankful that God had anointed someone with so much wisdom and miraculous power. No. And they took offense at him. Okay, let's talk about that before we read Jesus' answer. Okay. Nazareth remembers him as a kid. And you know what? If you knew Abraham Lincoln as a kid, 
or Tom Brady or Muhammad Ali or just about anybody, you know what they would be? Probably unspectacular. Just another kid, right? Some people end up living unspectacular lives, but others do spectacular things. In a small town, we have a saying in America that goes along with this. Here it is. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? In other words, I know him so well, he, he couldn't be the Messiah. Come on, he's from, he's from here. We knew him when he was a kid. We know his family. That's what they're going to say. As you know, in this Bible study, those of you that have been here for any length of time, whenever there's a question in the Bible, I like to answer it. Let's look at their questions. Where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he? Well, he's had it for a couple hundred trillion years, and even beyond that, since he's eternal God, second person of the Trinity, son of God. That's where he got it. He's always had it. He never had a beginning, number two. And you might answer that question also by saying, he's not just a man, by the way. It may look like a man. It's God in a man's body. Second question, where did this man get these miraculous powers? Well, he, he's God. Kind of goes with the package when you're God. That's how. That's where. He's always had him. Verse 55, isn't this, I love this one, isn't this the carpenter's son? Is it? No. Legally, he's the legal father. Yes. Sort of the adoptive father. Isn't this the carpenter's son? The implication there is he's a, he's a blue-collar, uneducated dude. He's the builder's son. By the way, the word, the word carpenter is really not that accurate. Carpenter, the word really in Greek is builder. And in that era, you would build more with rock and mortar and mud than you would with wood. Are you saying he didn't build with wood? No, I think he did. But he might have been a mason as well. Isn't this the carpenter's son? The implication is, shouldn't he just cool this stuff and just go be a builder like his dad? Isn't this the carpenter's son? No. It's God's son. Shouldn't he just be a carpenter? No. He's God's son following in his father's footsteps, right? He's the Lord. I love these questions. Isn't his mother's name Mary? Okay, ding, you got one right. Aren't his brothers, and they name them here, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We covered this a few weeks ago. The Catholics believe in the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. She and Joseph never had relations. They never had any more kids. These are his brothers, four brothers, plus Jesus, five kids, plus sisters, which implies at least two, seven kids in the family. He might have had 11 sisters, who knows, but he had at least two because it's sisters, plural. The point is, he's saying, doesn't he have a human father and a human mother and a human brothers and human sisters? And he's just a dude like one of us. He's blue collar from our little small funky town. Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Ditto for the answer, right? God in human flesh, that's where. But for 57 is just shocking to me. They've admitted the miraculous powers, right? 
They took offense at miraculous powers and godly wisdom. It's kind of a shocking thing. By the way, um, if you don't know about this, I'm just going to teach you a quick word, apocryphal. There are apocryphal gospels. You mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? No, those are the real gospels. There is in existence fragments or documents called the apocryphal gospels, like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary. Um, there's a bunch of them. Oh, wait a minute now. Why don't we have those in our Bible? Because they were all we can prove, number one, written hundreds of years after the names next to the, the gospel of Judas written two or 300 years after Judas died. So he didn't write it. The gospel of Thomas is one that New Agers love. Written again, centuries later. In the gospel of Thomas, do you know what it says? That Jesus did miracles as a little boy. He got mud together and made birds in the gospel of Thomas and then threw it up in the air and they flew away. Did that happen? No. How do you know? Number one, because the gospel's written hundreds of years later. Number two, they're asking, where did he get these miraculous powers? If he was doing that as a kid, they'd go, just like he was as a little boy, still doing miracles, good old little Jesus. He never did miracles until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Before that, no miracles. Okay. Um, his family, we covered this in chapter 12, does not believe in him right now. They come to take him because they think he's out of his mind. Remember that verse? Okay. Um, implication from this verse. People do this with Christianity. You know what they say? Yeah, I know a lot of Christians. They're just average, coarse gold, Oakhurst, Awani, Mariposa people. Jesus must not be that special. How come the PhDs don't believe in Jesus, most of them? How come the kings and the presidents don't? He's just kind of ordinary, and they take offense at Jesus as a result. It is a fact. It doesn't make Christianity untrue. To me, it makes it more true. It's a fact that, at least in the U.S., the chances that a person is a believer goes down as their income goes up. It goes down the chances that they'll be a Christian as their education. Oh, he's got a he's got an undergraduate degree, less chance. Master's degree, PhD. I'm not saying there aren't PhDs who believe there are, but most really educated, wealthy, powerful people, governors, senators, congressmen, presidents, most of them might say, I'm a Christian just like you, and they may not be. That sounded like somebody from the 1990s to me. All right. <clears throat> Depends on your definition of the word is. Okay, so um, notice they call him this man. He's fully God. Uh, they're offended at the gospel. May I say, this has been said before in Christian circles, the gospel itself, whether you know it or not, you love it, so do I. That's why you're here. That's why you're here on Zoom. We love it, right? It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. 
And yet, for unbelievers, the gospel is offensive. Don't miss that. It says it in the Bible. Why, why would it be offensive? Number one, you people are so narrow. Jesus is the only way. He is, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There's no other name, Peter says, given among men whereby we must be saved. That's, oh, and nowadays we're a plurality society. That's so offensive to be that narrow. You're saying all the other religions are wrong, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the atheists. The... Yeah, sorry, right? Truth by nature, I've said this before to you, have you noticed? It's narrow. Two plus five is seven. It's not nine. It's not 24. It's not six. It's not 161. There's a million wrong answers and one right answer. Where are you right now? You're in Oakhurst, California. If we had GPS, I could give you the coordinates where you are. You're not in Tokyo. You're not in Detroit. You're not in, thank God, you're not in Miami. The truth is narrow. Okay, the gospel is offensive because it's narrow. It's offensive because the first bit of news isn't good. Do you know what it is for an unbeliever? You're a sinner. If you don't come to Jesus, you're on your way to hell forever. And you can't save yourself. It's hopeless without Jesus. Oh, now I'm even more offended. The Bible is God's book, period. Oh, that's offensive again. Do you see what I mean? But it's the truth. And we're supposed to be like the scribes, bringing the storehouse out, sharing the scripture, Old Testament and new. Jesus died a bloody, torturous death on a cross. That's who you follow? Yes. It's the most beautiful thing he ever did. That's offensive. Because it's offensive, don't be surprised, and you know this is true, if churches trying to get more numbers in, which is more money and more prestige, we do 11 services. We got 120,000 people, whatever. Don't be surprised if they don't water it down. We don't preach hell here. We don't talk about repentance or sin. We don't say homosexuality or LGBTQ here. We just love everybody. It's not the gospel. You're watering it down now. You're trying to make it less offensive. Let it do its work. You got to be offended first until you realize, oh, wait a minute, I am a sinner. Oh, wait a minute. I can't stop drinking or smoking or sleeping around or whatever it is you do steal. I need a savior. You got to be offended first. Um, so here comes a weird verse. I'll just warn you. In uh, verse 57, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet, he's calling himself a prophet. We've already seen he's a king and a priest, the one that gives the offering. He's also the offering because he gives himself, but he's saying he's a prophet. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, his own town and in his own home. Meaning, no wonder you people knew me as a kid. That's the way it goes. A prophet's not honored usually in his own house. Brothers and sisters don't believe. Mom maybe has some doubts, Mary. Um, and certainly the neighbors think, 
that's just the little Nazarene boy. Nothing to see here. So he's telling them something that's true. A prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown and his own home. Here comes the weird verse, 58. Do you see it? Last verse of chapter 13. Yay, we're going to finish 13. Maybe not. We might take 45 minutes on this verse. Verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith, their unbelief. Wait, Jesus, shouldn't you do more miracles here? They don't believe. Show off. Show them what you got, Jesus. Do something spectacular. Nah, they don't believe. He's doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to do any good. They see one miracle, you know what they're going to say? Let's do something else. Let's see another one. And then another one. Miracles don't necessarily do much of anything if you're not a believer, if God hasn't called you by his spirit. In the, you might be surprised to learn that in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, it says something different. Oh, contradiction. He, 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 this verse says he didn't do many miracles there. Mark says... Most scholars think the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. Peter dictating, Mark writing it down, much younger man. He could not do. Wait, couldn't do? It would be against his miss mission, against his ministry, against the Holy Spirit's idea. What did he say a couple chapters ago? Don't throw your pearls before swine, unbelievers. They're just liable to trample them. Why do the miracles here? What are miracles? Just somebody doing magic tricks showing off. No, no, no. Every miracle he calls a sign. Signs point to something. This way to Disneyland. You wouldn't see that sign and go, we're here, kids, and camp out under the sign. You just read the sign and go, oh, it's that way. Take a left, honey, or whatever. And it would be a right for you people. Um, signs point to something. They point to his power, his deity, his wisdom, his knowledge, his omniscience. It, if they don't believe, why bother? So he doesn't do many miracles there as a result. What a curse on them because of their lack of faith. But the converse is true. Do you see verse 58? He doesn't do many miracles because they have a lack of faith. Well, then where do you do the miracles, Jesus? I do it, says Jesus, in the lives of those who have faith. Maybe not spectacular miracles, because then everybody would believe just on the basis of, oh, she became a Christian and she's glowing now. That's enough for me, right? Faith is believing, listen, without seeing. So the miracle might be that Harold here who has cancer and as a believer, gets healed. Praise God. We prayed for that. Harold prayed for that. He got healed. But maybe the greater miracle is that Harold gets cancer because we live in a fallen creation and doesn't get healed. And yet on his deathbed, he's still saying, praise Jesus. I can't lose here. I'm about to go into glory. That might be the greater miracle. Don't let your faith rest on, I want the signs always. Now I'm praying my mother's sick or my sister's sick or my neighbor's sick. and I'm praying, come on, Jesus. Don't base your faith on anything but the word of God. If he does a miracle, praise God.
If he doesn't, praise God, right? Either way, that's faith. Jesus rejected as a prophet, as a king, and certainly as a priest. I'm just reading my notes here. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, sometimes, one more lesson, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his home. Now, you're not a prophet in the true sense of the capital P, Old Testament. You're not Elijah, Moses, neither am I. But in a sense, you are, and so am I. Have you noticed, the Nelsons can testify to this, sometimes the hardest person to reach is the person in your own family or somebody, your sister, your brother, your best friend from that got drunk with you and now you're a Jesus freak, come on. Harder than an, a stranger sometimes. But by the grace of God, some of my friends are watching on Zoom tonight and we were all a bunch of sinners in high school, college. By the grace of God, here we are. Chapter 14, you say, finally, Joe, I was wondering if you were going to get there. Okay, chapter 14, briefly, is a pretty long flashback review of John the Baptist, whatever happened to him, how did he die? But there's all kinds of lessons in here about guilt, about um, unbelief, building even more unbelief and weirder and weirder doctrines, I'll show you. And then we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000, probably not tonight, but next time. Uh, anyway, chapter 14, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, cool. Uh, on Zoom, you still awake? Let me see. I don't see anyone sleeping. Okay. Oh, Patty Glass raised your hand. At that time, verse 1, chapter 14, Herod the Tetrarch, we'll explain what that is, heard the reports about Jesus. His fame is growing. The religious leaders have rejected him, but yet he's famous. The reports, the guy does miracles, he walked on water, he raised so-and-so's daughter. Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Reincarnation. That's why his miraculous powers, uh, 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 that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. What's a tetrarch, you ask? Okay, is it a king? No. A tetrarch, tetra, that prefix in Latin means one-fourth of. He was a ruler like a governor, like a mayor, like, you know, head of the city council, of one-fourth of that part of Israel. Some of his brothers ruled to the north, the south, the east, you know, that kind of thing. But this guy has such a big ego, he eventually goes to Rome and talks to Caligula, the emperor at the time, and says, please make me a king. Call me king. Give me that title. Caligula resents it and kicks him out. It sends him to Gaul, G-A-U-L, which is France, where he and his wife eventually die. Okay, just giving you that ahead of time. That'll be on the test. You might want to write it down. So who is Herod? Well, we're about to read the whole story. This is, uh, the name Herod can be very confusing in the Bible, in the New Testament. Why is that, Joe? Because there's a bunch of Herods. There's the guy, 
there's his son, there's his son, etc. Okay, so it starts with uh, all the Herods are, listen, Edomites. They're descended from Esau. They're not actually Jews, but they go through the motions of Judaism to keep the Jews happy that I'm your leader and I'm a Jew. Really, I am. And they're really not. They're all evil to one degree or another. Herod the Great is the first one. Guess who named him Herod the Great? He named himself. From now on, you would refer to me as Joe the Great, if you want, don't mind. Just kidding. Herod the Great founded the dynasty. He was the first one. 37 BC to 4 BC. He's the one that had the kids killed in Bethlehem. You say, wait, wait, time out here. He died when? He ruled till when? 4 BC. If you think Jesus was born in the year one or the year zero, there is no year zero, one BC or one AD, you're wrong. There's two theories on that, that he was born in four BC. And one of the last things this guy did was he found out the wise men come looking for a king. Oh, you know what? I'm the only king here. Kill all the children in Bethlehem up to two years old and that surrounding area. That's this guy, he, not, not the guy in Matthew 14, that's his father, Herod the Great. He ruled from 37 BC all the way to 4 BC. So the two theories are, by the way, Jesus was born in 7 BC or 4 BC. Wait, how could he be born BC before Christ? Because when they figured out the years, they got it wrong. Human error. But in any case, um, he was a heathen. He had nine or 10 wives. Guys, can you imagine? He slayed some of his wives and some of his sons if they got in his way of his power. Or they looked like he was, they were threatening to be more popular. He killed his own sons, his own wives, no problem. This is Herod the Great, the dad of the guy in this one. Killed the infants in Bethlehem, we talked about that. His son is this guy, Herod Antipas. Okay, have you ever heard of antipasto in Italian restaurants? It has nothing to do with Herod. I just thought I'd throw that in there to confuse you. Um, he's a tetrarch, ruler of a fourth of the kingdom. He rules from 4 BC to 39 AD. Translation, the entire life of Jesus, Antipas, Herod Antipas is the guy. Um, very deceptive, selfish, loved luxury, luxury, very ambitious. Okay, then there's Herod Agrippa. We read about him in the book of Acts chapter 12. He's the one that killed James, the uh, apostle. He imprisoned Peter in Acts 12. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Then there's Herod Agrippa II, who tried Paul in Acts 25. Um, they were all hostile to the Jews. They went through the motions of Judaism. They didn't believe. They were all evil uh, dictators. Uh, let's see. Okay, so let's talk about Herod Antipas now. Verse 2. This is the guy, by the way, background, who killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded. Matthew's about to tell you the story, okay? And it's, it's bad. Herod Antipas put off the air that he was very powerful and afraid of nothing. I want you to notice he's afraid of everything. He's afraid of his wife. He's afraid of the Jews, public opinion. This guy goes, which typical politician, whichever way the wind blows. 
Okay. He's got the error of being, knowing the truth about Judaism. He's read the Old Testament, at least parts of it, and heard it. What's your point, Joe? He doesn't believe. As a result, when you don't believe and you refuse the gospel, don't be surprised if people like that end up with bizarre doctrines. He kills John the Baptist. He hears about Jesus and says to his attendants, verse 2, I know who this is. It's John the Baptist risen from the dead, reincarnation. The Jews did not believe in reincarnation. Christians don't either. Christians believe in resurrection. Big difference. The idea of reincarnation is in Hinduism, mostly. A lot of New Agers believe it. Um, some Buddhists believe in reincarnation. The whole idea of reincarnation, by the way, if you've ever wondered, is you live and you die and, yeah, and you come back as something else. No, it's more than that. It's the law in, in Hinduism of karma. Okay? Karma is Harold here lived and died, and he wasn't a very nice guy. He's going to be reincarnated, but he might come back now as a person severely deformed. That's why he's deformed. He's paying for his sins. Or was he really a jerk and really bad? Yes, he could come back as a chicken or a dog or a mosquito. That's how bad was he? Hindus don't kill cows because it might be Uncle Harry, might be Uncle Harold, come back to life. You never know. On the other hand, if Harold was a pretty good Hindu, he could come back as a prince in the next life or a king or a brilliant scholar or a very wealthy, successful guy that starts Tesla or something or Microsoft. It's ridiculous. There's no proof for it. Hebrews says it is appointed unto man, listen, to live and die once and then the judgment. There's no second chance, third chance, fourth chance, once. He's refused the truth, so no wonder he thinks he's risen from the dead. I'll tell you this. There's great fear in that verse. Oh, no. I killed him and he's back. And he's, he's doing miracles? That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3. Now Herod, here's the flashback, had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, and the tense of the verb in verse 4 is over and over and over and over John was always saying it. It's not right, not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Okay, what's the story here? Herod's brother, Philip. Okay, this is just so convoluted. You're going to go, are you serious? Herod's brother, Philip, marries this gal. Okay, who is the gal, Joe? It's his niece. She marries Uncle Philip. You with me so far? <laughs> so we got incest between Philip, Herod's brother, and his niece. They're married. Herod, Agrippa, this guy, I, I mean, um, yeah, Herod Antipas, seduces 
his own niece, because it's his niece too, the son of another brother, and takes, his, takes her away from him and marries her. So he's guilty of adultery and incense, incest, or incense, if you prefer that term. Um, okay, so um, adultery and incest, he's married to his niece. Um, John the Baptist is a man of God. Jesus says, among men born of woman, there's nobody that's better, more righteous than John the Baptist. And yet, then he says, you remember, but he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater because you got the Holy Spirit forever. You understand the, the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. John didn't really get that, not fully. Okay, John the Baptist doesn't keep his mouth shut. He tells the truth, tells it like it is, knowing you might get yourself killed saying this, John. You sure you want to announce it? Yes, I am announcing it again. He has his brother's wife, that's adultery, and it's his niece, it's incest. He's going to hell. That's evil. Stop doing that. Wow. Guts. Gets him arrested. Um, okay. So uh, Matthew wants us to know how John died. That's surprising because from a worldly standpoint, getting decapitated Sounds like, oh, what a shame. Should have kept his mouth shut. No. Martyrs have special honor in heaven if you read the Bible, don't they? Absolutely. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Um, he probably was saying the word he said over and over and over and over and over when he was baptizing people. Do you remember? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Herod is afraid. Um, so, uh, he has him arrested. See that bound and put him in prison because of Herodias. It was not his idea. In fact, in the other gospels, we find out that Herod used to love to listen to John the Baptist, even in prison, preaching from the dungeon. You can hear the echoing his voice, repent, right? And Herod's listening and hope. My wife doesn't see me, but this is so interesting to me. Herodias says, he's making a fool of you, and he's embarrassing me. Arrest him. And he, being the powerful leader, says, okay, honey, I'll do it, and has him arrested. Not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, probably because Herodias, his wife, was saying that but he was afraid of the people. They considered John a prophet. Were they right? Absolutely. Jesus says more than a prophet for John. Okay, let's keep going and we'll stop probably mid, mid uh, passage here and we'll pick it up next week. On Herod's birthday, verse six, the daughter of Herodias, which isn't his daughter, she, it's probably his niece, uh, the daughter of Philip, and Herodias. You getting a headache now from all the, who's sleeping with who now? Okay. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, uh, the word for daughter, it's not a little girl, it's a teenager, young teen, 14, 15, something like that. The dances that were done in that culture were always 
suggestive, seductive, even pornographic. Okay, so this isn't, she did a little ballet, how sweet of the little girl. She does a sensuous dance and pleased Herod so much, verse 7, he promised with an oath, I swear, I'll give her, that girl, whatever she asks. Okay, uh, up to half my kingdom, we learned from another gospel. What's going on here? It's his birthday. It's a huge wing ding, unbelievable food. The booze is flowing. I'll guarantee you he's drunk and just speaks. I'll give her whatever she wants. That was a great dance. So the daughter is prompted by her mother in verse eight. And the mother says, here's what you should say. Give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Look at verse 9. The king was distressed, but there's no but. If you know it's the wrong thing to do, he should say, I'm the tetrarch, I'm the king, we're not doing that. But he did it. We'll pick it up next week to discuss more about this. There's a lot of lessons here um, with him. I want to leave you with this thought, though. As I said, Worldly-wise, you look at John's life, you go, well, he never really settled down, never really got married, didn't have a family, didn't have any money, ended up getting his head cut off. What a loss. God's in heaven going, what a tremendous life lived for me. Unapologetic faith. May we live that kind of a life. Because the day may be coming where you can't speak up. You mean about so-and-so, the governor, president, somebody, maybe, but maybe it's, you can't speak up about Jesus, Bible, God, gospel, salvation. Could happen. On that sour note, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word. We love you. If it's true that we find the gospel, which is the most precious thing, then amen. It is precious to us, God. We owe you everything. But if it's true, on the other hand, that you are the man who finds the treasure and the pearl and the treasure and the pearl are the kingdom of God and your kids, us, your bride, the bride of Christ, how awesome is that? We, either way, we owe you everything. In both ways, we owe you everything. Help us to be bold in our faith, God, and to remember that uh, we are to preach the gospel in season and out and to use the Old Testament and the New and show how they tie together. And your word never returns to you void. May these truths change the way we live, God. We love you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. That's very important. Thanks for being here. Those of you on Zoom, God bless. Thanks for being here. See you next Tuesday. Two more Bible studies and we're done. God bless.